it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, April 1, 2022. First day of the month here on the Guy Benson Show, and I'm your host today, Christine, a.k.a. Cookie. I'm the producer of this very show and rapper extraordinaire. Guy Benson is off today, and finally, finally, he's giving me permission to take the reins. So lucky you. You can listen to this show every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Guy Benson Show, coast to coast, and on demand for free on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. That's one spot for all of your program-related needs, GuyBensonShow.com. We're live today in New York City. Little bit of a grain rainy day, but we're gonna bring you nothing but brightness for the next three hours. Here's a lineup for today. Later this hour, I'm gonna have Byron York. And I think we all know what we have to ask him. Is he still Team Chris or is he Team Will? We'll ask him. In the next hour, we have our chief romance and baby correspondent, Jessica Tarlov. She's gonna be in studio with me, so I'm so excited for that. Me and her besties. We're going to just gossip and get the latest. And finally, in that last hour, we're going to have Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey, which is my home state. And we're going to get uh, the latest on the border crisis with uh, Congressman Chip Roy. So there's a lot to get to here on today's edition of the Guy Benson Show. But where do we begin always? Stats. Hit it. Fox News alert. The COVID stats for today. Christine. Uh, the, co- the COVID, can I, oh, hi. Hi there. Yeah, I, my microphone, I've been trying to talk. My microphone's been down. What is going on? Dan, we will have a stern talking after the show. Christine, could you have gone on for three hours? 100%. <laughs> April Fool's, everyone. Christine is not hosting the show. This was her idea. I was uh, skeptical, but I think that was pretty good. Pretty good. Well done. Did you memorize that? Did you have it written down? I definitely did not memorize that. I may have went back and listened <laughs> to some of your intros and jotted some things down and practiced and practiced and a little stumble here and there. But I really feel like I definitely could have interviewed Byron York. And I still think you should probably ask him about Will or Chris and what how he feels. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll take that under advisement uh, when we have Byron here later in the hour. And it is the Guy Benson Show, not from New York, but in fact from sunny Miami, Florida. I'll be here for the next three hours. Don't worry. Although Christine will be back in our final hour for the home stretch. We have a lot to get to here. And I want to start actually for real, no longer an April Fool's joke. This story is absolutely real, with an update to something that we had talked about on this show a couple years ago, getting on three years ago. And it sort of fell at the time and certainly still does under the rubric, under the category of Woke Tales. Woke Tales. We usually do Woke Tales later in the show, but today I wanted to celebrate an actual victory on this front. We often poke fun 
and skewer the woke left for their excesses and their nonsense. We sometimes take it much more seriously because I think at its core, the illiberalism of wokeness is a very big concern. Not just to me, but I think really to the country and some of our core values. And so rather than merely mock or lament, I think it's important to celebrate when justice is served. And that is what has happened in this story that comes out of Ohio. So back in 2016, let's just review the record here. It started in 2016, shortly after Donald Trump had won the election. Of course, he'd carried the state of Ohio, and within a few days, there was an incident in Oberlin. So right by Oberlin College, which is a very left-wing school in Ohio, there was this family-owned bakery. And there were some students from Oberlin, students of color, who came in and were trying to use a fake ID to buy wine, and then were trying to steal wine and shoplift. And one of the proprietors of the business, I believe the son of the owner at the time, uh, chased one of the offenders out the door because he was trying to steal wine. And there was a confrontation and people started hitting the guy who was trying to stop the store from being robbed. And it escalated when the police arrived into kind of this racially tinged event. CBS News did a whole report about it a few years later because there were lawsuits filed. I'll get to that in a second. But this was Ted Koppel for CBS News, and just some of the sound, there's like body cam footage of the kid getting arrested, and he's he's weeping, he's saying he's innocent, he's saying he's terrified of the police, playing the victim, cut 17. Relax. The initial confusion recorded here on a police body camera bordered at times on chaos. Why? Why are you arresting me? White cop, black suspect. A scene many of us might be tempted to process through our own personal bias. Why do you think you're going to, you're going to die? Because I'm scared of police. I'm a black man in custody of police. Really? I've, never had, I've never been to the back of a police car. At court, roughly nine months later, the young man, a student at Oberlin College in Ohio, received a reduced sentence after pleading guilty to attempted theft, essentially confirming the police report of what had happened. So you hear him there, why, why are you arresting me? And the answer is he was trying to steal something. And he pled guilty nine months later, confirming the police account. Now... Shortly after the arrest, shortly after the incident in November 2016, students, activists, left-wingers at Oberlin College decided that this was all about race. White business, white cop, black suspect, and they decided that this was a grave injustice. And so they held a bunch of rallies and protests outside the business, trying to boycott the business. And they had their typical chanting, here's cut 18, a taste of it. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. Right. No justice, no peace. That's, you know, one of the slogans. And this was outside Gibson's Bakery that had been there for like a 100 years, owned by this family, where the activists on campus had decided that the business was in the wrong for protecting themselves against shoplifting and for calling the police on what had happened. And the victim in this case, was the person who eventually pleaded guilty to the crime. 
And it was purely based on, I think, emotion around Trump's election and then race stuff. So this was a perfect example, I would say, of a left-wing, woke, racialized mob demanding things. And Oberlin College, also run by left-wingers, decided not only to support the right of protest of the students, and you can be extremely wrong and protest for bad things, right? That's fine. You have the right to do that. What Oberlin College did through their administration was join in an official capacity the smear. There was a dean who was, according to witnesses at trial, passing out flyers about the boycott and accusing this bakery of racial discrimination, which was a slander, that was a libel, that was untrue and a smear. They also used to contract with this bakery to provide baked goods on campus. They stopped buying goods from the bakery, and you had this crowd outside the bakery chanting and everything, and business fell off dramatically because of this huge controversy. And so what happened next was the owners of the bakery, at the time the main proprietor, David Gibson, this business had been in his family for years. It had been a pillar of the community for decades. He found no recourse other than a lawsuit to get his reputation back. He said, we spent decades building our reputation, and it was taken from us in a matter of minutes based on a lie. Oberlin was actively part of the lie, participated in it, and so because of that reputational damage and because of the business damage, they said for a while they lost 50% of their business, they filed a lawsuit against Oberlin for not only coddling the woke mob on their campus, who got everything backwards, and we're seeing it all through this prism of race that did not apply based on the facts here. But the facts didn't matter, as is so often the case with these woke mobs. The facts are irrelevant. It's the morality play, the larger truth. And as opposed to just maybe turning a blind eye or looking away, the Oberlin powers that be decided that in order to keep the woke mob satisfied among their students, they were going to have to show how committed to the cause they were as well, and therefore they took additional steps, and that is what prompted this lawsuit. Now, that was all in 2016. The lawsuit came in 2017. The process takes a while, but ultimately a jury, so that's the thing. They had a jury in Ohio, so you get out of the hallways of a left-wing college in sort of, you know, this, this little outpost of academia and some of this extremism at Oberlin, and you get into the community and you just have normal Ohioans on a jury. They heard the facts of the case, they deliberated, and they ultimately determined that they were going to award a massive settlement to the bakery against Oberlin. Oberlin was going to have to pay more than $40 million in damages. Now, it got a little bit reduced later on, but it was still all in between attorney's fees and damages. It was in the ballpark of $32 million that was awarded to this little business from this family that was innocent. They were just trying to run a business. There was someone trying to use a fake ID to buy wine, then trying to steal wine. They stopped the stealing from happening. They called the police, and this turned into a giant racial incident where they were demonized as discriminatory racists. 
with Oberlin College in some ways leading that charge based on nothing. So that is, in the eyes of many, textbook defamation. That is not allowed. And the jury agreed. $32 million later, David Gibson, back at the time, reacted to the verdict, and you can hear him get emotional and choked up in Cut 19. We weren't in the past, and we aren't now. And I, the jury has made that clear. I do appreciate that. And further, I appreciate from the jury when they took care of this Goliath that, uh, that, that took a lot of guts on their part. Um, they've made it so that we have a chance and an opportunity to keep the lights on. <laughs> yeah. Giving us an opportunity to keep the lights on for another generation. Yeah, and that's where he starts to cry because there have been generations of this business in his family and there are because of this settlement or because of this uh, verdict really the damages they're going to be able to keep the lights on and then some for quite some time for another generation it's very personal very very personal to him and you can understand why now sadly mr gibson has passed away in the intervening years he had cancer so he was not able to see this all the way through because oberlin college appealed And a lot of people said, well, look, this was a shock to the system, and the jury punished Oberlin, but the the judges here in the appeals court are probably going to maybe not throw it out. We'll see or significantly bring down uh, the dollar amount of this punishment here. Well, that resolution came today, which is why we've opened with this story for you. I know it's sort of an unorthodox opening to the show. But because we talk about woke-related issues so often, I wanted to bring you this victory, this happy conclusion. National Review reporting earlier, an Ohio appeals court has upheld ruling that awarded more than $30 million to a bakery that accused Oberlin College of damaging its business and libeling them with a false accusation of racism. And so this was a unanimous decision by a three-judge panel so the appeal has failed the jury's decision has been unanimously upheld and we'll see what's next for Oberlin but they might have to fork over tens of millions of dollars to this little business that they smeared now I'm a strong proponent of free speech On this show, I wrote a book with Mary Catherine Ham, End of Discussion, Against Outrage Mobs. This was an example of an outrage mob run amok in an unfair way. You can protest. Again, you can be totally wrong in your protests. Defamation is a separate question. And the complicity in the defamation of the school itself gave a big target for this bakery to go after. And I'm very glad that this family decided to fight back hard. I'm glad that the jury decided what it did, and I'm glad that the appeals court today has upheld that ruling and that decision. Because while I'm also not a litigious person, I think we do way too much suing in this country, sometimes when it comes to the woke mob, they have such an outsized platform and influence, this huge megaphone, even if they represent a small portion of society, they bully people constantly. And when it comes to institutions like Oberlin College, perhaps in some cases, the only way to make them think twice in the future before they just indulge and go along with a giant hatchet job at the behest of the woke people out of fear of them or out of agreement with them or both, 
The only way to make them think twice, I would say, in some of these cases, is to exact painful consequences and extract a lot of money from them. They have to get hit where it hurts. And that is the lesson here at Oberlin. And I hope this judgment reverberates and catches the attention of university administrators across the country. And I hope that businesses and other people who are targeted by these folks also pay attention. That justice can be served, and in this case, in my opinion, has been served. Gibson's Bakery, in business and soon to be a lot richer, courtesy indirectly of the woke mob and their lies and their hysteria. That is a win on Woke Tales today, and that's how we begin the Guy Benson Show on this Friday. We are just getting started. Thank you for listening. We will be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you, it's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com, or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. I don't speak for the Walt Disney Company, but it's very evident that the Walt Disney Company does not speak for me or for the silent majority of uh, Disney customers who support this. As a matter of fact, we're lucky to have someone like Governor DeSantis in Tallahassee that is speaking for us, and that's what I'm hoping to do, to go speak for the silent majority of Disney customers. You know, my, my phone's been off the hook. Uh, I've been getting emails, uh, messages on social media from Disney customers from all walks of life, all lines of business, telling me, thank you for standing up. Uh, we feel like we don't have a voice, and, uh, and we're, we're glad you're, you're, you're doing this. It's the Guy Benson Show. That was Jose Castillo, a Disney employee on Fox News last night, dissenting from the company line. He's not alone. I saw another piece shared today, I put it on my Twitter, of a, of a gay man who works at Disney and has for years strongly opposing Disney's meddling and involvement on this uh, Florida law. And there are many people who work at Disney who strongly, passionately disagree with what the company is doing. And they've opened up this can of worms they have picked a fight with the Florida governor, who doesn't back down, the legislature. They are total hypocrites on human rights and human dignity. Disney is. 
And now they're sort of like, wow, what's what's going on here? And there are liberals saying, why are these conservatives now all attacking Disney? This is how the culture wars start. The left fires the first shot, and then they're shocked and angry when anyone notices and fires back. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Roe. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Chugging ahead on the Guy Benson Show on this Friday from Miami. I'm Guy Benson. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free, on demand every day. Byron York is with us now. Chief political correspondent at the Washington Examiner and a Fox News contributor. Byron, good to have you back. Great to be here, Guy. Thanks for having me. I would like for you to explain for our audience this controversy involving the phone logs from the White House on January 6th and some supposedly missing phone logs that were widely shared. That story was that revelation among journalists, blue check marks. It was everywhere. I wasn't sure what to make of it, so I didn't really weigh in too heavily. But others did. For example, this was a CNN fact check about this. Cut 23. Yes, bigger than Watergate, worse than Watergate. That was a regular refrain from ex-President Trump when he tried to hype up supposed Democratic scandals as part of his deflect and project playbook. But it's coming back to bite him as we find out there are more than seven hours of missing phone records and a basically blank presidential schedule during the hours around January 6th and the attack on the Capitol. I mean, seven hours makes the 18 minutes of erased Oval Office tapes around Watergate look like a game of patty cake. Now, we don't yet know what was excluded from the full record or why. But it's a bit of historic irony that one of the bylines on the story that broke the news belongs to none other than Bob Woodward, of course, one of the legendary reporters around Watergate. And for what it's worth, the other half of that team, Carl Bernstein, has been outspoken in saying that Trump's attempted coup is, in fact, worse than Watergate. Okay, Byron. So that was on CNN a number of days ago. And look, let me just preface this by saying I am about as critical as anyone of former President Trump and his actions on January 6th and his rhetoric leading up to it and afterwards and the lies that he told about the election. I'm on the record. I don't have to go back and belabor the point because I've said it more than enough. That being said, it is important when we're talking about an event and we're covering as the media events as serious as January 6th that we get things right. And in this case, it looks like yet again the media got things wrong. They couldn't be bothered to deal with the Hunter Biden story. They said that was fake news, disinformation Russia. So they ignored that for a very long time. And then they've so- they finally came around to actual journalism on that subject in the last week or so. But on this one, they all rushed out to say, look at this story, look at this bombshell, the seven missing hours and all of it. And then what's the coda to this, Byron? What did we discover yesterday or uh, this morning? Well, the coda is that there's a lot less here than meets the eye, perhaps nothing, as a matter of fact. Uh, it did have, the, you know, the story had the imprimatur of uh, Bob Woodward, Watergate legend, 
et cetera, that you just uh, played. And then what we found out is in two different stories, uh, the first one from Jonathan Swan at Axios, and then the second one from Jamie Gangel at CNN, um, explaining the uh, the lack of uh, phone records for this period of time. And I think we ought to start by saying the whole story is being driven by the January 6th committee. This is a it, it is a partisan um, uh, inquiry. Um, and it is looking far beyond uh, just the, the rioters who you know, ran through and sacked the Capitol uh, on January 6th. And one of the things they're trying to do is they want to build some case against Donald Trump that they can use to um, use against Republicans in the midterms. Very, very, they're very clear about they're hoping their findings will be useful in the midterms. And then, of course, useful if Trump were to run for president again. Uh, so they're the ones who are pushing this. And what we found out is that, first of all, it's not its not going to be a surprise to anybody that the Trump White House was a pretty chaotic place at times. Uh, they had kind of slipshod record-keeping record a lot of the time. That's not a defense of slipshod record-keeping, but it does explain that maybe no, it's, an, it's an indictment of deeper. the overall atmosphere yeah. in the administration. Right. But But I understand your point within this context. Go on. So Axios reported uh, that a woman named uh, Molly Michael, insiders would know who she is. She was President Trump's executive assistant. You went through Molly Michael to, to get to President Trump. She was actually out that day on January 6th. And so a lot of the records that she would have kept, nobody else actually kept. Um, and also we know uh, some of the president's phone calls during that day, because we know from the other end, whoever he talked to. Um, we also know that the president was a big cell phone user, and uh, not all of those calls were logged uh, at the White House. And finally, I don't think there's any um, um, any indication that there's some big, new, dark secret of what Trump did. Uh, during as the riot went on on January 6th, we know he was watching it on television. We know he initially thought it was a good thing, and he was kind of cheering his own supporters on. Uh, we know that there were people begging him, his staff and others begging him to come out and condemn uh, the rioting and, and order the rioters or urge them to, to go home. Um, we know all that, and I don't think that anybody has suggested that, that, that anything uh, in this will will change but it's a big hit it was a big hit for 48 hours or so for the january 6th committee which wants to use this politically in the midterms and beyond and you mentioned the reporting from jamie gangel from cnn we played a soundbite from another cnn colleague she tweeted this this is like you know breaking news yesterday The six pages of White House switchboard logs for January 6th are complete based on an official review of White House records, according to a source familiar with the matter. There are no missing pages, and the seven-hour gap is likely explained by use of White House landlines and cell phones. So, again, I in no way, shape, or form want to carry any water for Trump and his conduct and his rhetoric and all of that surrounding January 6th. But the media seems to just step on a rake every single day on something. 
And this was one that a lot of people wanted to stampede over and believe because it was bad, bad look for Trump. And they're covering all this stuff up. And then it's like, well, actually, maybe that big, mysterious gap isn't so mysterious after all. And people just kind of just like sheepishly, Byron, slink away and it's on to the next thing. And I just wonder if they understand how much intense, long-lasting damage they are continuing to do to the reputation of an entire industry in terms of undermining public trust. Because you would think there have been many opportunities for self-reflection and course correction, and there, in many cases, seem to just be actively choosing, almost enthusiastically choosing, the opposite direction, the opposite course of action. Yeah, I mean, for example, one of those prime opportunities would have been surrounding the Steele dossier. And for most members of the press... Uh, I mean, that has been emphatically, emphatically refuted. Um, And most of the people who've made a big, big deal of that are either still true believers or they're just being really quiet about it. Um, Another thing is now we've just seen this kind of amazing reporting from The New York Times and The Washington Post about the Hunter Biden laptop in which they basically vouch for the authenticity of some large number of the emails on the laptop. Well, and just we in the nick of time, Byron. Just we know that, that <laughs> this is apparently coming toward an indictment or not indictment decision on Hunter Biden in the Justice Department. And we know that prosecutors are using these um, emails from the laptop uh, as part of their uh, investigation. And, you know, the, the Washington Post said, well, you know, when the story came out, the laptop story in the New York Post in, in October of 2020, we, the Washington Post, asked Rudy Giuliani for, for a copy of the laptop's contents, and he wouldn't give it to us. And they said they couldn't get one until June of 2021. And you think that's still nine months ago. Uh, why, what took you so long, uh, especially since other news organizations, including Fox News, had verified parts of the of the emails on the laptop in the days following the initial break of the story and by the way just so, just to jump in here byron says yeah. I, I just want to juxtapose something the steel dossier which was totally unverified not authenticated and in some key ways debunked that was reported on endlessly for years by the mainstream media However, the Hunter Biden laptop, which was authentic, was authenticated, was found to be real, that was not covered by the mainstream media, and it's taken them a year and a half to finally do it. I mean, I don't know if there's a clearer cut case to be made about almost corruption in the media than that, you know, looking at those two examples side by side. To make matters worse, as far as the laptop is concerned, there were so many accusations that stories from the laptop were uh, not only fake and untrue, but were literally Russian disinformation. Um, and we know that right, the so hang on actual Russian disinformation, yeah, right? Actual the, the, Russian disinformation. We know the steel dossier. Fifty former intelligence. Um, well, that, that was actual Russian disinformation, but we know as far as the Hunter Biden laptop is concerned, you had these 50 former intelligence experts who come out and say that it appears to be Russian disinformation, even though they said in their letter that they had no evidence on which to base that other than their sense 
that this is the kind of thing that the Russians uh, would do. So we, it, you know, I was I was watching, you know, uh, Senator Grassley and Senator Johnson, two Republicans who have been pursuing the Hunter Biden matter, have been making presentations on the Senate floor about some of the information they've gotten uh, that corroborates what is on the laptop. And every time they present some information, uh, they say and look to their Democratic colleagues who said at the time that it was Russian disinformation. They're looking at them and they're saying, well, do you still believe it's Russian disinformation? So um, this fight is still going on, and they're still getting more evidence, and, and Johnson and Grassley are certainly continuing to uh, to investigate. Do you think, Byron, and this is sort of the working theory, that the reason, and I sort of likened it to back in October 2020, you had the media and big tech and that whole cabal, the intelligence people that you mentioned, and of course, the Democrats and the Biden campaign leading the charge, sort of setting the rules and the marching orders. Uh, we are going to bury this. This is not real. This is yep. Russian disinformation, empty coffin. Let's put that empty coffin in the ground and bury it and we'll never speak of it again. And then weirdly, in the last few weeks, you've got the Post and the Times exhuming this coffin and yep. being shocked that there's a bunch of bones in it, actually. And they're like, well, look at all this journalism we're now doing <laughs> uh, about this. And, yep. and the question is then obvious or glaring, why? They would be very happy for this to remain buried because they were all part of the burying process. They were yeah. all in on it. It's hugely embarrassing and crushing to their credibility again to have to come back to this issue. Why on earth are they doing it at all? And the working theory, I guess, Byron, is they, their sources are telling them at the DOJ, whatever's happening, whatever's cooking in that Biden, in that Hunter Biden investigation is going to be bad enough that if they don't get out in front of it in some way, journalistically, it would look even worse and detonate as an even more destructive bomb. Right. Does that sound right to you? It's plausible. Actually, uh, Howard Kurtz at, at Fox, who spent a number of years at The Washington Post, uh, said, says it pretty convincingly, which is that uh, if you think a Hunter Biden indictment is on the way, and I'm not saying that it is, but if you think it's a real possibility, if it were to happen and it's based on events that your readers, were they to read only the New York Times or the Washington Post, would never have heard of or mm -hmm. they would have thought it was based on fake or Russian disinformation, uh, this, it would be very embarrassing that you know this is serious enough – that federal prosecutors have, have brought federal charges against this man, Hunter Biden, uh, but we just never told you about it. Well, we didn't know about it, but we never told you about it. So it puts him, it makes him look really bad. So I'm not saying that Hunter Biden is going to be indicted, right. but if he were to be indicted now, at least New York Times could say, oh, yeah, yeah, we reported on that a couple of days ago. A couple of quick things here, Byron. The jobs report for March out today. Yeah. Uh, some momentum on jobs, more than 400,000 jobs created, still short of expectations. Then also tempered, though, at the same time by the inflation report from yesterday, yet another four-decade high. Democrats nervous about that. They're also nervous, it sounds like. More of them are starting to sort of pop their heads up and say, oh, gee, uh, this, this border crisis thing seems uh, not great. Uh, what's this, this Title 42 thing? And that we're going to have Congressman yeah. Chip Roy on the show later on to get into this in detail. But it's like the administration's making a decision to take a border crisis that's already a huge liability politically for their party and just a disaster for the country 
and make it far worse. And there are Democrats who have been satisfied to say absolutely nothing about it for month after month after month, really the whole administration so far, who I think are starting to get the heads up that this is going to be so bad that it's going yeah. to hurt the party. So they're like, oh, maybe we shouldn't do this. I wonder what you make of the sort of like this uh, last moment conversion from some of these people who are suddenly concerned. Well, here again, it, this is a coming and predictable disaster. Just as it was predictable once Joe Biden took the oath of office that there would be a large increase of people trying to enter the United States illegally in the belief that with Biden as president, they could now stay, which turned out to be true. Just as you saw that big surge in January of 2021 with the lifting of Title 42, uh, that means more people will be allowed to stay. And we know that is coming. And so here again, uh, the New York Times did a piece to kind of warn people, you know, this, this, thing on the, this thing on the border is kind of bad. And they literally said that officials feared there could be as many as 18,000 encounters with illegal border crossers per day, just to give you some yeah, numbers. A day. Uh, we, have, we have just found out that in the first six months of the fiscal year, meaning from October 1st to the end of March, uh, there were one million encounters. Now, that is a record number, a record number of encounters with illegal border crossers. If it were 18,000 a day, that would be three-plus million in that same no, six it's, and that's the, and that's what's going to come something much worse than what we're seeing now is coming and it's so glaringly obvious that some congressional democrats who never want to say a word about the border are suddenly worried not because it seems like they're actually concerned about the border they're concerned about their political skin and this could be a very very bad thing for the party even some people who are you know rooting for the democrats to win are saying this is insane this could turn a wave year into an obliteration We'll see. Following all of this is Byron York every day at the Washington Examiner. He's a Fox News contributor. Byron, appreciate it. Have a good weekend. Thank you, Guy. The Guy Benson Show is back after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We are back here on The Guy Benson Show. A judge invalidated New York City's ongoing mask policies earlier today. And the city of New York is going to appeal. And listen to this. The health commissioner of New York City says that his administration, New York City, will not recommend that the mask requirement be lifted for children ages 2 through 5 in daycare or educational settings. Because they're concerned about upticks in the virus. 2 through 5 toddlers are being forced to continue masking when no one else is in New York. I can only describe this with four words. Totally psychotic child abuse. It has nothing to do with science. That's what's happening in New York City at this hour. It's the Guy Benson Show. More next. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Time now for our middle hour on the Guy Benson Show on this Friday from Miami, Florida. I am Guy Benson. Thank you so much for tuning in every weekday, 3 to 6 Eastern 
and around the clock on demand for free every day at GuyBensonShow.com. You can listen many ways as the show airs, including through our partners at Odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com, or on our many affiliates across the country. If you can't listen live on the app, on the live stream, Fox Nation, we have the podcast, and that is totally free, GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert. The Dow ends the day and the week in the green, up 139 today, closing at 34,818. Well, joining us from New York in our studio is Jessica Tarloff, Fox News contributor, head of research at Bustle, chief romance and baby correspondent (laughs) here at The Guy Benson Show, and also co-host of The Five, which is a new addition to her title as of the last few weeks, few months. Jesse, welcome back. Thank you so much. It is April Fool's Day, and we opened the show today with producer Christine who apparently was so busy rehearsing for this role that she forgot to include your new title on the rundown. That's okay. I remembered it. I caught it. But Christine (laughs) was preoccupied today because she opened the show as if she was going to host. And she ran through the whole opening and all of the guests that were going to be on and all the topics that she was going to bring up. And then I jumped in, and it was an April Fool's. And it was fun. People can go check that out on the podcast. Are you an April Fool's person? Have you been memorably fooled? At any point that you can recall in your life, have you been part of the fooling or not really? I definitely get fooled. Very. I mean, you could fool me on any given day. And so on a day when people are really trying, it's going to happen. I actually responded to your tweet about this, um, that the LeBron James retirement got me. I was like, this is crazy. He's probably going to have a scoring title this year. I can't believe he would be giving up. And then I was like, oh, it's April Fool's. Um, so I fall for I it. You're saying you can get stuff past you any day. I mean, basically I'm, I'm very good at political debate. I don't feel like people can get that much past me in that forum. Um, but in regular life, I'm incredibly naive and gullible. Um, so that's just a fact, but I will Fair. say, and another exciting April fool's moment is that today is the one-year anniversary of when I got engaged to my now husband, and I was, Mm. unbeknownst to me, four days pregnant. So it's a good day for that. Uh, It's all very exciting, and this is part of the reason why you were chief romance (laughs) and baby correspondent. Nothing more romantic Uh, than a a baby before being married. And and a a surprise (laughs) uh, engagement reveal on April Fool's Day. There's a lot going on here. Uh, How is... Baby, by the way, Cleo, how's she doing? She's great. I was just telling producer Christine that we had our first baby hit their head really hard. Does she have a concussion or a brain bleed? Let's sit up all night watching the monitor and stir her every three hours to make sure that she's still alive and processing things. And my baby who loves to sleep, knock on wood, that continues really pissed off. When you're waking her up every three hours overnight. She's like, I'm fine. I'm, I'm I hit good, my head. Mom. Let me yeah. sleep. Yep. You need help, but I am just fine. <laughs> yes. Examine your head. <laughs> right. But uh, baby Cleo is wonderful. Motherhood is everything I hoped it would be and more. Um, and I'm, this is my third week back at work. And, you know, I seem, I seem to be doing it all with a lot of help and getting to work from home. So that's not really doing it all. But <laughs> how old good. is she? She is going to be four months on April 11th. Wow. 
Yeah, so time is definitely flying here. Yeah. Uh, I do want to ask because you are, as I mentioned, one of these co-hosts on The Five, and it's you, and it's Geraldo, um, and it's uh, Harold Ford. Mm-hmm. And then just recently for a couple days, Piers Morgan. That's an interesting yeah. addition. Well, I didn't – so those weren't my days. So I didn't, you know, I didn't know that he was – going to be on and it does as i'm someone also who did my graduate school work in my first political campaign in the uk the definitions of conservative and liberal are very different because everyone is socially liberal over there um but peers he you know he loves to mix it up and i saw that he was you know drinking tea pinky up with uh, judge piero and i imagine (laughs) that it went uh very well because he has a new uh fox nation show to be promoting so he's been making the rounds i think he was on outnumbered today as well so jesse let's talk about some political stuff i know that uh you have i'm sure covered this and thought about it and talked about it and let's discuss the walkbacks because there have been quite a few of them uh, where biden will go out and say something and and the president's team will say well Ooh, that's not really what he meant. And sometimes it's immediate, and sometimes there's a walk back, then an unwalk back, and then a rewalk back. It hasn't been a great week or so on that front for him and for that operation. And unfortunately, it's not on small matters. It's on much bigger stuff uh, in the middle of a war where the President of the United States and Commander-in-Chief, words matter a lot. Um, and I just wonder what your view is of sort of the communication strategy of the White House right now and if this kind of thing can be avoided, because even as someone who doesn't support the president, didn't vote for him, there have been times where I was just just wincing. Like, I wish that had not just happened, but it did happen on a number of occasions. I come at this from one perspective. You're a Democrat, a Biden supporter, a Biden voter. I wonder how you feel about it. Well, I'm also a Biden voter that works at Fox News and has to talk about this stuff. So that does put me in a little bit of a different category uh, to other Biden supporters. Obviously, it would be great if it could just be completely seamless and everyone was on the same page all the time. Um, that doesn't happen in any administration. I know that the, you know, that God, this man can't stay in power comment, which Biden, his team walked back, but he refused to walk back personally and said it was about moral indignation. I think we all do sit there and just say, oh, this guy cannot stay in power about Putin. But that's obviously something that you don't even want to be sending up flares that we're looking for regime change. The one that I found the most interesting or or difficult, I guess, is the one about whether sanctions are supposed to deter or not. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. I've always thought, and I studied political science and I did a PhD in political science, I thought that they were supposed to deter, at least at some level, even if it's not going to change the truth. Well, that's what they said. That's what they right. said like a thousand times right. until he said the opposite. Right, but it's not even about what they said versus what he said. It's just inherently when you think about what a sanction is, it is supposed to change a behavior, right? And if the behavior that you're trying to change is having a war with a sovereign nation, then that is what we're focused on, and, and that would be deterrence. And I had read it that Putin is going to do what Putin wants to do, more or less. But the people who we were trying to deter actually were his support system. All these oligarchs that we're sanctioning who have been hit really hard, upper echelons of society, um, getting through to some of the generals. There have been reports that there have been Russian generals who have you know, turned their backs um, on 
Russia in this way. There was even... well, I mean, seven of them have been killed, right? You well, know, so yeah, they're probably a little anxious about things at the moment. A hundred percent. But that was one where I had the most trouble kind of unpacking what whether the walk back was needed was needed because I think they should have stuck with the original story, quite frankly, because a lot of people would then say, well, what was the point of all of this if it wasn't to be a deterrent to yeah, whoever the sanctions were placed on? Obviously a fair question, I think. Yeah. Uh, it's one that we've been asking here. Meanwhile, there is this story in The Hill, and I wrote about this today at townhall.com. Some prominent progressives running for various offices around the country have rather abruptly decided that they do not want to be called progressives anymore. So you kind of suddenly have a bunch of people who have very much been in that camp choosing to eschew the term (laughs) progressive at this point. And I know some conservatives, myself included, have been kind of making fun of this because, you know, the word liberal and self-described liberals – after a while, decided, well, that was too politically toxic. Let's stop calling ourselves liberals. Let's move on to something else. So then it was progressives, and now that doesn't seem to be working out very well, and there's been kind of some fun on conservative Twitter. What's the next word they're going to use? What's the new term to describe this thing uh, that many Americans want no part of? And you are, I'd say, a little bit more on the conventional or establishment end of the democratic spectrum compared to the progressive left. And I just wonder what your thoughts are and sort of your impressions of, I mean, like the squad people and people who are in very safe districts and very blue areas, they're perfectly like, you know, call us whatever you want. We're proud progressives, defund the police, you know, you know, all of it. Green New Deal. Right. They are going to stick to that even to the detriment of, of the wider party. But there's other folks who are running, you know, statewide in Wisconsin as an example, statewide in Pennsylvania is another mm-hmm. example, where they're very much on the progressive end of things, but that word they're not terribly excited about. What do you make of that? Well, I think that they just started paying attention or they finally got some decent consultants that are telling them that this branding is not good for business and that you're going to have a lot of trouble, especially running a statewide election, if you continue to use it. Now, I remember Hillary Clinton harnessed the word progressive to be about the root of the word, which is progress. And she said, sure, call me a progressive if you want. I've always been focused on progress. And Hillary Clinton is queen establishment, right? Hillary or Nancy Pelosi. You can't get as, you know, middle of the road Democrat as as her, and that's how she took on the name um, or took on the word. But the problem is for these progressives like John Fetterman in Pennsylvania, and I actually just wrote about this yesterday for The Hill, that Connor Lamb, who is more moderate than John Fetterman and, and is well behind him in the polls, has gotten all of the endorsements from the important people in Pennsylvania. He has the entire Philadelphia Democratic machine behind him. He has the black church behind him. He's been endorsed by all the major Latino groups. And the reason – that is the case is because moderates win elections and they're staring down the barrel of looking at what is going to happen when a John or at least Fred- perceived perceived moderates or relative moderates i would just fine say. yes you would say that and it is your show and so i want you to say whatever you want but <laughs> to you. my Very mind generous. obviously connor lamb who put together a coalition of republicans democrats and independents when running for Congress, is somebody that they feel like they can run on a statewide ticket with and and do decently well, especially in a climate that's tilting towards Republicans. We've all seen the polls about what the congressional ballot looks like, the generic ballot, yep. that the Senate could go back. I mean, Democrats are 
in a rush to get things done before November in case we don't have control anymore. And that's why these progressives, or I think they're calling themselves uh, people populists or people movement focused (laughs) and whatever it is, um, are screaming that they want Joe Biden to sign a slew of executive orders to get these progressive goals accomplished as quickly as possible. Um, So that's how I see what's going on. Um, And I really do wish that everybody would just stay in their lane. Life would be so much easier. Like if you are AOC or you're Cori Bush, um, Rashida Tlaib, whoever it is, and you want to run a campaign, a far left campaign, go ahead and do that. Just why are you picking on people who have to run more moderate campaigns? And why are you calling them turncoats? And why are you spending all of your time ragging on Joe Manchin, for instance, who, by the way, we wouldn't have hopefully soon, you know, Judge Jackson without Joe Manchin. And now we have Susan Collins who helped out too or says that she will. But these are the types of things that just make you kind of, you know, face palm. Is that is that other phrase where I'm putting my, my yes. head in? Yeah, my face feet. palm. That's face right. palm where you're like, just shut up. And just do what you want to do and don't bother the guy or the gal who needs to run a different kind of race because all politics is local, even if local means a state. I kind of want to just tweet and like tag you both, Jessica Tarloff to AOC, quote, just shut up and yeah. just see what happens. I I mean I- – we're friends, so I'm going to ask you not to do that. Um, <laughs> you but, and I are friends, you mean? Yes, I'm AOC. I, I have I've said similar things about her before. You haven't, you haven't gotten any cocktails? Mm-hmm. Uh, you weren't her guest at the Met Gala or anything like that? No, I was not, though I do okay. enjoy the Met Gala, which might be just liberal elitist of me anyway. But no, I've never been. Um, <laughs> okay. But yeah, people just need to respect. I mean, it's the same thing on the Republican side, you know, when – if you're a Freedom Caucus person and you're going to win your election that way, do it. I mean, with the Tea Party people, let them do it, right? If that's what they think can be effective in these races and you run your own campaign. This yeah, see, I, I think so you, you're talking about this uh, whatever hilarious new thing they're doing. What is it? People, people, populist, PP. Popu- yeah. I, I have two other PPs that I think are important on my side of the coalition here, my side of the spectrum, principle and pragmatism. Mm-hmm. You need to think about both of those things if right. you want to win and govern. Uh, so that's sort of how I think about this stuff. We've got to leave it there for now. Jessica Tarloff, Fox News contributor, co-host of The Five. You're on tonight, right? We'll be I seeing you on the news channel here very shortly. short minutes. You'll head down there to uh, Studio M. Oh, yeah. And we'll be, we'll I be need watching. to stop calling it Studio F. It's yep, Studio, Studio M, M Yep, head of research at Bustle, chief romance and baby correspondent here. Uh, she's got a lot going on on the program. Uh, thanks for making some time and uh, break a leg Enjoy tonight Miami. on TV. Yep. Thank you very much. Uh, with that, we will step aside very briefly and come right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. I just saw this come across. Apparently, Amy Schumer who is one of the hosts or hostesses of the Oscars this year, a comedian, uh, famously left-wing. She has announced that she is going to take a break from, I guess, being in public or her career because she is traumatized by the Will Smith-Chris Rock incident at the Academy Awards. She was traumatized by it, so she needs to take an extended break. So... Our thoughts and prayers are with Amy Schumer during this difficult time. I hope she can get through this. I wonder if she's spoken to anyone in Ukraine recently. Anyway, here's another story 
We talked about how New York City has announced and the uh, public health officials there saying they are not going to lift the mask mandate for two to five-year-olds, even though everyone else has it lifted in schools, not the littlest kids at the lowest risk of COVID. Because, of course, I feel like we're just committed to being as stupid as possible in parts of this country. This is sort of related, but on the other end of the uh, age spectrum when it comes to education, Stanford University is apparently requiring all of their students to be boosted in order to be eligible to attend classes and so on and so forth. So there's an international student who's written a piece in Newsweek saying that this is a real problem for him because he was double vaccinated. Then he got COVID in January, so just a few months ago. And he does not, for medical reasons, want to get the booster shot because he just had COVID. And I know we've had doctors saying on this show you should probably wait maybe six months at least until after you've had COVID before you want to consider a booster shot. But Stanford's rule is the rule. This graduate student has a wife and children. They're at Stanford. They've got visas. They're in this country because he's a very smart person studying at Stanford. If he can't enroll in the classes because he's not complying with this booster rule, he will lose his eligibility to be in the country, and he would have to leave America or get deported based on a nonsensical, non-scientific, blanket policy that Stanford is enforcing on all of its students, I guess, regardless of natural immunity, which is crazy. Some of the smartest people, quote-unquote, are some of the dumbest, as it turns out, on these issues. I hope they resolve this, because that is grossly unfair. The Guy Benson Show comes back with Chip Roy next. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Midway point of the show today, happy Friday, from sunny Miami, Florida. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. If you can't listen to the entire broadcast, 3 to 6 Eastern Live, there's a podcast for that. GuyBensonShow.com. Always free, always on demand. With us now is Congressman Chip Roy, Republican of Texas from Texas 21. And, Congressman, it's good to have you back here on the program. Hey, Guy, it has been a little too long. I don't know what you're doing down in Miami, but uh, if the storm's let up in D.C., I'm trying to get down there for a speech uh, uh, tomorrow. So, I don't know, maybe I'll run across you. It's entirely possible, as a matter of fact. I should check the agenda where I'm at. (laughs) We can talk (laughs) offline. Let's talk about your state and the southern border in particular. This is breaking news earlier from our Fox News colleague, Adam Shaw, who reported the following. The Biden administration has now officially confirmed that it will end Title 42 on May the 23rd, a move, Shaw writes, that is widely expected to lead to even bigger migrant numbers at the border. I want to get your reaction to the policy change itself and then also the timing of it May, which is generally considered to be perhaps like peak season already for illegal immigration at the southern border. They're going to make this change right in the middle of an already exploding peak season. Yeah, well, I think it's important for your listeners to understand what we're talking about. And you have very educated listeners, and you've talked about this before. But just to be clear, Title 42, which is a health code, uh, is something the Trump administration started in the last year of the Trump administration during the pandemic to provide another tool to stop the flow coming across the border. It allows Border Patrol to literally turn people around under Title 42. 
the Biden administration continued partial use of Title 42 because they're not using most of the other tools at their disposal, right? They're, they're allowing asylum laws to be abused. They're not really using migrant protection protocols. They're not doing anything seriously to try to stop the flow. But Title 42 was the one thing. So to give you an example, last year, about 2 million people were apprehended. It depends on which part of the year you look at, but roughly 2 million. 700,000 were intercepted and then released into the United States under what's called Title VIII, okay? But the other 1.3 million, all of those, or most of those, were turned away under Title 42. Now, they're not all unique individuals. Some of them are repeats, but they're turned away. Give me the March numbers. Roughly 200,000. We're getting the final numbers. I think it's like 215,000. Half of those were turned away in March under Title 42. So what that means is, come May 23rd, and then leading up to that, right, everybody knows, oh, my gosh, that's coming. So more people are going to come. Come May 23rd, those people will no longer be turned away. So that means you're going to have almost double or maybe you know, at least double the number of people being released into the United States. The vast majority of them have no legitimate claim to asylum. That's what the consequence of this policy changes. And they want to hide behind it being a health issue, right? So the DHS secretary and Biden want to say, oh, this is Walensky and CDC. No, 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 no. This is a team decision to decide whether or not you're going to use the laws on the books to find ways to say, no, we're not going to allow you to bum rush our border and try to come into the United States and then be released. They're making a choice. It's Mayorkas' fault just as much as Walensky or CDC, and it all, of course, leads to Biden. What should they do? Not that they'll listen to you, but what should they do? Well, they should be using all tools at the disposal to send a strong message to the world that you come here through our legal system. There are a handful of you have a legitimate claim to asylum. Go to your consulates. Go make a claim. If there's an emergency, you come to our border, we'll process it, but it'll be far and few between. Use migrant protection protocols to hold people across the, the river. You enforce Title 42 under pandemic rules, but also just generally communicable diseases. We have the power to do that. And you actually enforce our uh, asylum laws the way they're supposed to, and you stop the flow. Now, look, I'm telling you, this is all word of mouth. Talk to anybody who knows the cartels doing this for profit. Talk to anybody who knows the border. And this is all about what people expect they're going to be able to get away with. If you send a signal to the world that our border's open, then more people will come. Now you have people from 160 countries. Now you have people coming from not just Mexico and the Northern Triangle seeking you know, a job. You've got people from all over the world, including, by the way, somewhere between eight and 13,000 Russians, depending on what reports you look at, and at least 14 that were nabbed from state sponsors of terrorism. Now, by the way, guys, we're not talking, you and I here, about known gotaways, which were over half a right. million known gotaways last year. And they think now already, I just saw a report today, over 300,000 known gotaways in this fiscal year. That is the last five months under the Biden administration. So let me just jump in here, Congressman, because I want to give specificity to what you're talking about. We had Bill Maluchin, our colleague, on this yeah. program just yesterday. We always talk about the known gotaway component of the stats with him. And he did tweet earlier today, three high-level Border Patrol officials and sources tell me there have been more than 300,000 recorded gotaways since October 1st, including more than 62,000 just in the month of March. That's roughly 2,000 per day. The true number is even higher. These are only the known gotaways. Those are staggering figures that are far worse 
than last year's staggering figures, which were already a huge problem. And when you talk about the 2 million people who were apprehended last year, that does not include the hundreds of thousands of known gotaways, nor does it include the unknown number of unknown gotaways. And I think those are also really important points. Let me just say one thing. I rarely are ever going to fawn over or say something particularly compelling or positive about the media. But Bill Malugin, who you just referenced, has been doing extraordinary work covering the facts on the ground, covering the news, covering the events as, as they unfold. You know, I've got some other friends like Brandon Darby with Breitbart and some others who do a great job infiltrating and understanding what's going on with the cartels. But seriously, credit and kudos to Bill for that uh, and getting the facts out. I, that 300,000 number I was just citing, I think, came from a, a Bill Malugin report. But that's what's actually happening. And, and that's what I think the American people don't understand why this is so dangerous and so bad. That there are so many people coming into the United States that we don't know who they are. We don't exactly know where they're going. When Senator Cruz and I were at the border in September, we went down and we went to one of the scan facilities about 30 miles in, uh, into the United States from the Rio Grande, which is where they stop trucks for the follow-up scan to make sure that no one's uh, abusing the system. But you're only picking about one out of 10 trucks. They picked one of the trucks. We go through it. We scan it. Well, then we saw one of the images that had 28 people piled into the back of trucks. This is happening every day. Now, again, neither you nor I, I don't want to speak for you, but those of us who love our country, love what we stand for, we do not begrudge people wanting to come here. I get it. God bless them. But we are doing a disservice to our own country in terms of security and a disservice to migrants being abused for profit. Just last night, one of my friends on the border who knows it and is just talking to migrants literally at the river, a former DPS agent, was talking to some folks from Venezuela, from Cuba and several other locations, all saying we have to pay three to $5,000 and we're in a monthly payment plan. Some of them then are held on the hook when they get here, put in stash houses, held into the sex trafficking or human trafficking trade. And this is what this administration is doing in supposedly the name of compassion. It's wrong. It's wrong for America. They could stop it. They choose not to stop it. And that's on them. They're making that choice and endangering us in the process. Oh, yeah. So it's a national security issue. It's a public health issue. It's a public safety issue. It's a national sovereignty issue. It's also just a fairness issue. I know we talk about it less and less, but on that list of disservices that you were just describing, another one is all the many people who have gone through the legal process, often at great expense over the course of many years to do it the right way. And treating illegal immigrants the way that the Biden administration is is just a slap in the face of people who are doing it the right way as well. Last question on the border stuff, and I want to turn to one other topic here in a moment, Congressman. But I guess the question is now what, right? We see that Title 42 is coming to an end in May. We know that the numbers are going to be very bad in March, probably worse in April, ramping up and up and up. And it's already a heightened crisis to begin with. The Border Patrol agents on the ground and the officials can only do so much. What are they telling you that they're planning to do to try to prepare for this crush that is coming? So, interestingly, my uh, staffer on this, my legislative director who does my immigration and border security work, was literally just on the phone about 30 minutes ago with one of the top uh, you know, legislative uh, you know, uh, folks at the uh, Department of Homeland Security pressing them on this, saying, look, you guys keep talking about how you, quote, have plans. Their plans seem to be to try to prop up FEMA and try to prop up more processing, right? They want to stick in and give more power to asylum officers to adjudicate claims, which basically means they're going to process more people. At the end of the day, that's their plan. 
process more individuals, release more individuals under Title VIII under the theory that they're supposed to come back to adjudicate their asylum claims and just keep pumping more people to the United States. The problem with that, besides the fact that it's a magnet for people getting abused by the cartels, is that it then distracts Border Patrol to become essentially processing entities and leaves our border wide open between the ports of entry. Because these people just come seek Border Patrol. Border Patrol sits there and processes them. Then the the known gotaways you just talked about in Bill's report, 300,000 over the last five, six months, those increase. Those are all many, many of whom are bad actors. So that's where we stand. And I think where we ought to go going forward, Republicans need to light up the, the, the Democratic administration and our colleagues on our Title 42 discharge petition, requiring Title 42 to continue to be used. Almost every Republican, I think except for maybe Kinzinger, uh, has signed this discharge petition. We ought to force Democrats to answer the question why they won't. Don't let Nancy Pelosi just run the House. Sign a discharge petition to move this bill to the floor, to have a vote on Title 42. Then let's force their hand on migrant protection protocols. They're under a federal judge's order to actually go out and engage in migrant protection protocols, which means stopping people on the other side of the river and working with Mexico to do that. And then we should just force them to actually do asylum uh, processing the proper way and to send a signal to the world. But at the end of the day, we also have to talk about impeaching Mayorkas for his failing to faithfully execute the laws of the United States. And Texas and other states, but in particular Texas, is going to have to take action. we got to do more than just build a few more fences and process some criminal trespassing charges. We've got to step up and try to turn people away. Finally, on the president's budget, I know that was generally met with a yawn. People don't seem that interested in talking about budgets, deficits, debt. This has been a bipartisan problem. Republicans do not escape scrutiny on this. They are less insane than the Democrats, but still, in many cases, unserious. I know it's an issue that you actually do care about. The president put forward this $5.8 trillion budget, which is more than a billion, excuse me, more than a trillion dollars more than President Trump's final budget proposal before the pandemic. So take that plus a trillion and then some. And many in the press are just printing the White House talking point that this is a moderate budget that pivots to deficit reduction. It's it's just breathtaking. Well, that is the way of D.C. And you've heard me. I, I, I've got a lot of faults, uh, as, as we all do. But I hope people at least know that I try to be an equal opportunity basher of the swamp, Republicans or Democrats. And and I've called out I called out Trump administration when it was spending too much money. And and so I've been pretty, I think, you know, objective on this. This is another massive swamp spending bill. It's not enough to come forward and say, oh, don't worry. We increased defense spending by four point seven percent. And don't worry, we're going to have this little tax increase over here on just the rich. We're going to pay for stuff. And then look at the actual numbers, and it continues to explode our debt and to have deficit spending. But here's the problem, Guy. It's not just about the 30 now almost going towards $31 trillion of debt. It's that we're funding bureaucracy, and we're funding uh, the big entities and agencies that are targeting us. We're funding the Department of Justice to go after parents who go to a school board and challenge them. We're funding a Department of Homeland Security not to secure the border. We're funding an ATF to go after us for exercising our gun rights. We're funding uh, – just go down the list of all the things we're funding, a Department of Education system that is corrupt. Why are we doing that? Why do we keep borrowing money, undermining our currency, undermining our health of our economy, and then wondering why we're losing our freedoms? We should stop doing that, and Republicans are just as guilty of it. 
And we need to have serious resolve next January if Republicans are given power to hold the line on this and not just give lip service to fiscal responsibility, but change the way we think about spending. Stop funding tyranny. Congressman Chip Roy, he represents the 21st congressional district down in the Lone Star state of Texas. It's looking pretty likely that later on this month, just in a few weeks, I'll be heading down to the border, actually for the first time in any sort of journalistic capacity, to take a look at this for myself. Much more on that to come. But you got a sense of how important this issue is and a real context of the implications policy-wise from Congressman Roy here in this interview. Congressman, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for stopping by today. No, and Guy, when you go to the border, give me a holler. Happy to talk to you about it. And, and if you need any you know, uh, direction down there of some of the great people to talk to to get behind-the-scenes stuff, let me know. Uh, God bless. Maybe we'll cross paths in Miami. All right. Sounds good. Safe travels. That's Chip Roy. On The Guy Benson Show, we will be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. So this is interesting. Jen Psaki is reportedly not long for the White House. She is in talks with NBC to get an MSNBC gig. She would be a contributor on their airwaves and then also would get her own show, apparently, on Peacock, which is the streaming service over at NBC. And I do think it's kind of interesting that she is known to be in active negotiations, apparently, with a news organization while she remains the press secretary at the White House speaking on behalf of the president to news organizations, including the one that she is apparently going to be joining soon. That's, I think, kind of interesting timing, and maybe there are some questions that people might want to ask about the ethics there. It's not surprising that someone who is a White House press secretary would go on to a media job. We have several of them. Here at Fox, of course, Dana Perino, Ari Fleischer. We've seen former Obama folks hired at CNN and MSNBC. It's actually quite common. It's just uh, this report about the sequencing of it that I think is raising a few eyebrows. I did mention on Twitter that if they do not name Jen Psaki's show on Peacock, Circleback with Jen Psaki, someone should lose their job. That's just an obvious one. A little tongue-in-cheek, little reference to her time at the White House. I think it's actually not even joking. I think that's a good idea. Also, let's juxtapose this story with the decision over at CBS News to hire Mick Mulvaney, former member of Congress, former budget director under the Trump administration, and, of course, he had other positions there as well. And people have just lost their minds that CBS dared to hire Mulvaney. And there are reports about an internal backlash at the network and staffers saying that they're horrified and disappointed and there's all this unrest. And, of course, the argument is, well, Trump is uniquely terrible and therefore anyone around him is uniquely terrible and therefore we can't disgrace ourselves by having anyone who worked for him or supports him on the payroll because we are journalists and blah, blah, blah. And look, roughly half the country voted for Donald Trump twice. Tens upon tens of millions of Americans voted for him. He had to staff an administration. He did so. And having some of those voices and faces represented in our conversations about politics seems like fairness and representation 101. But no, 
You have these holier-than-thou media types up on their high horse screaming about this while whistling past the graveyard on their own credibility on one issue after another. It's quite a microcosm. Both of these stories, the Saki thing and the Mulvaney flip-out at CBS of the current media moment. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. Chris Christie, former governor of New Jersey, joins me next. Don't go anywhere. o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on a Friday on the Guy Benson Show from Miami, Florida. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are almost to the weekend. We'll get there together. One hour left, and you don't want to miss it right here. If you missed any minute of today's show or this week's shows, check out the podcast. Every day, free of charge, GuyBensonShow.com, plus bonus Benson on the weekends. That's GuyBensonShow.com. And the happy hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is just so good. I recommend it. 21 plus only, of course. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com to find out where it's sold near you. It's expanded into eight new states just in the last month or so. You can find out where it's sold in your area. You can order online. TheLongDrink.com. With me now is Chris Christie, the 55th governor of the great state of New Jersey, author of the book Republican Rescue, and he's back here at GovChristie on Twitter. Governor, great to have you on this Friday. Happy Friday to you. Thank you. Same to you, Guy. You're in a warmer place than I am right now. Yes, sir. I can't complain. And probably a freer place as well down here in Florida. I'm also pretty happy about that. I want to ask you about this before we get into politics. It is April Fool's Day. I generally try to remind myself when I wake up that it's April Fool's Day so I don't log on to Twitter and see something and maybe amplify it or do something stupid. However... There have been some pretty good April Fool's pranks pulled through the years, and I'm wondering, have you ever been fooled badly on this day, or have you ever pulled the prank on someone, or do you just sort of ignore this day? I sort of ignore the day, Guy. Um, I wake up in the morning cognizant of it, as you just said, and I have my guard up all day. So I've never I've never tried to fool anybody, and, and luckily, except for a couple of minor little incidents with my kids, I've never been fooled. Okay, fair enough. The subjects, the topics that we will address in the interview, none of them are fake. These are all real stories. And so <laughs> let's, let's start with this one. Uh, I addressed this actually a little bit in the last hour. Jen Psaki is now kind of widely reported to be in contract negotiations or at least in talks with NBC to join MSNBC when she leaves the White House apparently pretty soon and to get her own show on their streaming service. I have no problem with her landing somewhere. This is what press secretaries and people in administrations do. It would not be surprising at all that someone from that administration would go to MSNBC and sort of dog bites man, not surprising. Are you at all surprised by sort of the timing of this where she would be and is active press secretary speaking on behalf of the president to news organizations, including the one that she is apparently going to be joining in pretty short order is there something unusual in your mind about that? 
Yeah, there is. I mean, usually the way it goes is when you're you're having that negotiation, it either happens, you know, when you get out um, and very quickly thereafter or after you've already announced that you're leaving. Um, and then, you know, people will start to reach out to you. I think this idea that she hasn't announced that she's leaving yet, that she's still going to be in the press room, um, you know, calling on these folks, um, expecting that she's going to be objective about the people who are going to be her colleagues um, in, a, in a very short period of time. Um, it's just another indication of the blind spot that this administration has on a lot of these ethical issues led by the Hunter Biden situation and, and going from there. Another related story that we also briefly hit on last hour was, and it's very much in the same vein, the brouhaha at CBS News because they hired Mick Mulvaney, who, of course, was a Trump White House insider. He was budget director. He had other roles. He was in Congress before that. And I think the mentality in the mainstream press is anyone who is, quote, unquote, complicit in Donald Trump's rise to power or governance or any of it has no place in sort of respectable society and certainly not in a newsroom like CBS, even as a commentator out there giving the side of conservatives, you know, a former Trump official, that perspective, anything like that. And I'm sure you get exactly this kind of criticism in your perch over at ABC. I just honestly don't really understand it. I have some huge problems with Trump and some of the stuff that he did, especially after his presidency. I know you agree with me on some of that, but he was also the duly elected president of the United States. He served for four years. He had tens of millions of people who voted for him. And having folks who worked for him in that administration populating, you know, news channels and debates on television and other related kind of forums, that's just kind of politics 101 and and media 101 and i think for them to try to say oh there's something spectacularly different about trump and therefore the likes of mick mulvaney should be unemployable as a commentator that seems that pretty short-sighted and ideological to me i wonder what you think yeah look i have two things to say about this the first is there are too few people like mick mulvaney on the networks not too many uh, and, I, and I think that's what CBS is doing, and I think they've been pretty honest about it. You know, they're getting ready for the midterms, and they want people who can give them insights and observations from uh, from the Republican side of the aisle. And so, and look, I know Mick, and I think he's a he's a bright guy, and he brings them not only great perspective from the executive branch, but also from his years as, con- as a congressman. Right. Um, so I think it's just ridiculous and overblown. But I will tell you that. In the aftermath of my hiring at ABC in early 2018, that uh, I didn't hear it right then, but about a year later, I had a number of reporters come up to me and say, uh, you know, we objected, loudly objected, when it was, you know, spread around here that you were going to be hired, um, and, and we were wrong. You know, we're glad you're here, and, and it was just a wrong, it was an overreaction on our part, but there's no doubt that those same reporters, what they were telling me was they were trying to get my hiring killed yep. uh, there. And, and and I think it's it's purely because we're Republican. Don't kid me that it's just because of Donald Trump. It is not. I never worked in the Trump administration. I certainly was a major supporter and did a lot of things that we've all talked about, uh, Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton and debate prep and chairing the opioid commission and chairing the transition. But I never formally worked in the administration. So don't tell me it's just about Donald Trump. A lot of these folks just don't want 
Republican conservative voices on their air. They'd rather have it dominated as it is by liberal voices. And you don't hear any of them right now objecting to Jen Psaki, only to Mick Mulvaney. No, they'll all be like, oh, congratulations when it's finally announced. Oh, big congratulations, Jen. And that's the thing. They love to hear an echo chamber of themselves. And then an occasional Republican-leaning voice who will often agree with them and concede most of their points. That's what a lot of them want. It's a lot of what their viewers actually want at some of these places. And you'd think that it would be enough to have a panel dominated by, let's say, two explicitly left-wing panelists and then two journalists who are almost certainly Democrats, and then, like, one person of your persuasion. But for many yeah. people, that's just that's just too much, and they can't handle it. Uh, but you show up on this week, and you tell it as you see it, and I see those tweets go around every Sunday when you're on that show. So that's probably okay. why they're happy that they hired you, because uh, you do tend to make news on that show as a panelist. I also want to ask you about this, Governor, because I saw you were tweeting about it. A judge in New York has ruled just yesterday that Democrats in that state have unconstitutionally drawn new congressional districts for partisan advantage. And I will say it was one of the most shameless gerrymanders I have ever seen in my life, having followed this stuff a little bit. And look, both parties do it. The Republicans have done it to their advantage. The Democrats do it to their advantage. The Democrats hate gerrymandering, except when it's their own gerrymandering, just like they hate money in politics, unless it's their money in politics, right? This is how they operate. In New York, they were so ruthless and so shameless about it that the judge said, look, this is obviously unconstitutional, and they've been ordered to go back to the drawing board. What do you make of that decision and the overall redistricting this year because it looks like when the dust settles the democrats actually will have an advantage overall on redistricting well you know as you probably know mike pompeo and i are the co-chairs of the national republican redistricting trust and have been helping with that effort so let me say three quick things in this guy first as to new york um there is a direct constitutional amendment that was approved by the voters in 2014 in new york saying Pushed by the Democrats, by the way, right? At the time, the Democrats were advocating this. Yeah, pushed by Andrew Cuomo and legislative uh, Democrats. And they specifically went against it. And the judge's opinion yesterday was really just dead on. Um, It said, look, you're absolutely doing the opposite of what the Constitutional Amendment said. It is just absolutely infirm, this map. And you got till April 11th to do it, or we're going to take it out of your hands. Um, I think that's the right thing to do. We've been out there advocating for constitutional maps. In terms of how, the, the, you know, we've now won three in a row here, Guy, on the Republican side. The maps that the, 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 the gerrymandering in Maryland, um, you know, was not was not approved. Governor Hogan vetoed it, and his veto was upheld in the courts. Uh, they have to go back to the drawing board based upon the governor's rejection of gerrymandered maps, and we also won in court in Wisconsin. So it's starting to turn the other way for us. But I tell you, Guy, it's, it's something I said before, and I want to say it again on your program. We need to focus on these state Supreme Court elections. We, we took our eye off the ball in Ohio, in North Carolina, and in Pennsylvania. And those are the places where we've been hurt the most because we lost Republican majorities in those courts and flipped Democrat. And they have now approved what we believe to be gerrymandered maps in those states. And so you know, we have to, as a party, focus on these state Supreme Court races because they make a huge difference. Um, when we go to, uh, to to these to the redistricting and how these maps are going to be decided by the judges who sit there. 
Governor, you just invoked another man's name, Andrew Cuomo, former governor of New York. I saw a story that you guys had lunch or something recently. You go back with him. I'm much more critical of him than you are on this show, and we have these conversations. I get it. I'm just wondering, and I'm not asking you to reveal anything that he might have told you in confidence, but do you have any sense of this potential comeback tour he seems to at least want to launch? What's that about? Look, I think, um, you know, what I see happening is this is a guy who's struggling to try to reestablish his reputation. Um, It feels as if he was treated unfairly. Uh, Look, the fact of the matter is that anybody who goes through this stuff in politics um, feels that way from time to time. But not all of them are sitting on $18 million of campaign money um, that he has been allowed to keep. And so he's spending some of that money. I don't think um, it's going to lead to any comeback anywhere in the near term uh, for, for Andrew Cuomo. Um, and I told him that. Um, but, you know, he's sitting on this money, and apparently he's going to attempt to spend it to try to rehabilitate his image. Last but not least, the president of the United States, four times in the last week or so, his team has had to clean up and walk back things that he has said on the global stage, I mean, of significant import having to do with U.S. troops maybe going to Ukraine. And he said, oh, that's not what I meant, even though I told our, you know, the troops that when you are there, you will see X, Y, and Z. He said, oh, I just meant the training that we're doing of the Ukrainians in Poland. Then they walked that back, saying, no, we're not training the Ukrainians in Poland. There was a the whole thing about deterrence and Putin and the sanctions. That was a big mess for them. I mean, just, you know, the list goes checking down the boxes here. Another one obviously being saying that Putin should no longer be in power and then say that wasn't really a policy statement. It was just a personal expression of moral outrage. I know there was one or two other ones, the chemical weapons, one that we would respond in kind if Russia used chemical weapons in Ukraine. That's not what he meant. And, you know, you cut people slack under pressure, misspeaking from time to time. But misspeaking or getting things wrong or revealing things that he shouldn't have or whatever the explanation was, that many times in that short a period – under the glare of the international spotlight. I just wonder what you think of that performance from Biden and how it reflects on his leadership. It's brutally bad. And it not only, first and foremost, makes the American people less confident in his leadership, it makes people around the world less confident in his leadership and whether they can count on what he says. Look, Guy, our business in politics and in media is we're a word business. We, it, what we say and how we use words is the way we communicate to folks and is our responsibility. And it doesn't mean you don't make mistakes from time to time. I've done it. Everybody in a high-level political position has made a mistake. This guy is a gaff machine, and he, he is completely ill-suited at this stage of his life for being able to make policy pronouncements on behalf of the most powerful country in the world. And he's showing it day after day after day. It's an embarrassment to have that card that he has up in his press conferences reading from what he's supposed to be saying, Um, that he has to read from a card to say what reporters he should call on at a press conference now a year and a half into his presidency. Um, This is embarrassing personally. It is undermining from a leadership perspective. And it is making the American people, I think, increasingly nervous about his leadership. But even more importantly, uh, increasing, increasingly coming to the conclusion that he is just not fit for that job. Is the alternative worse? Yes. 
Yes, it is. Because if you look at yeah. her, her performance cannot be attributed to anything other than a complete lack of ability to be able to articulate positions in a way that is convincing and credible. And we've seen it over and over again with her, uh, with the vice president. And, and I think, you know, the American people are in a real quandary here where the president doesn't seem to be able to do it from day to day in a way that's strong and credible. Um, and the vice president provides, you know, no relief in that regard. Yeah, well, this is what most voters voted for last time. But I think a lot of them are sort of questioning that and they'll have a course correction opportunity Across the country, they had won and did some stuff significantly last November, but across the country this coming November, and I, I think November, as I've said before, cannot come quickly enough from my perspective on the electoral side of things. Chris Christie, former governor of New Jersey, a Republican, his book, Republican Rescue, available now. Always enjoy it, Governor Christie. Thank you so much. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Guy. Have a great weekend. You too. And the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show resumes after this break. Guy Benson will be right back. Happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. I saw this. The New York Times, which acquired that game Wordle, I think for like a million dollars. People play it. You know, they got, what, four or five shots at it. We've talked about it on the show. I don't play it. Adam does, but I don't. Christine, have you stuck with Wordle or are you done with it? I think I did it for like one day. But you know who tries to play it? Little Megan. Yeah, that makes sense that she would stick to it and you would be like, you know, this is a quick fad and you're done. Anyway, Wordle is now a New York Times property and the Times says that they are going to be removing potentially insensitive words as the clues moving forward, which kind of feels to me like every word these days might be potentially insensitive to someone. So I think we should just banish words just to be safe. It's five letters, right? Maybe they should ban woman. That seems like it's a very insensitive word these days. In fact, the Washington Post wouldn't use it in a piece yesterday about pregnant women. They referred to pregnant people at every mention in the piece and in the headline. Pregnant people. And as I've said, we can respect the choices and the preferences and the dignity of trans people without changing our entire language. 99.99% of people who are pregnant are pregnant women and identify that way. And to have... Major news organizations changing their style guide on this, I think, is just crazy, honestly, and a huge overcorrection and a cave to a very small but strident element of society. So your potentially insensitive wordle of the day is woman. On The Guy Benson Show, back after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Happy hour on a Friday on the Guy Benson Show from Miami, Florida. Earlier, we caught up with Byron York of the Washington Examiner and a Fox News contributor. Much to discuss on the politics and the news of the day. Here's part of that conversation with Byron York. Now, I just wonder if they understand how much intense, long-lasting damage they are continuing to do to the reputation of an entire industry in terms of undermining public trust. Because you would think there have been many opportunities for self-reflection and course correction, and there, in many cases, seem to just be actively choosing, almost enthusiastically choosing, the opposite direction, the opposite course of action. Yeah, I mean, for example, one of those prime opportunities would have been surrounding the Steele dossier. 
and for yes. most members yes. of the press. Uh, I mean, that has been emphatically, emphatically refuted. Um, and most of the people who've made a big, big deal of that are either still true believers or they're just being really quiet about it. Um, another thing is now we've just seen this kind of amazing reporting from the New York Times and the Washington Post about the Hunter Biden laptop in which they yes. basically vouch for the authenticity of some large number of the emails on the laptop. Well, and just we in the nick of time, Byron. Just we know that, that <laughs> this is apparently coming toward an indictment or not indictment decision on Hunter Biden in the Justice Department. And we know that prosecutors are using these um, emails from the laptop uh, as part of their uh, investigation. And, you know, the, the Washington Post said, well, you know, when the story came out, the laptop story in the New York Post in, in October of 2020, we, the Washington Post, asked Rudy Giuliani for, for a copy of the laptop's contents, and he wouldn't give it to us. And they said they couldn't get one until June of 2021. And you think that's still nine months ago. Uh, why, what took you so long, uh, especially since other news organizations, including Fox News, had verified parts of the of the emails on the laptop in the days following the initial break of the story. And by the way, just so, just to jump in here, Byron, yeah. I, just, I just want to juxtapose something. The Steele dossier, which was totally unverified, not authenticated, and in some key ways debunked, that was reported on endlessly for years by the mainstream media. However, the Hunter Biden laptop, which was authentic, was authenticated, was found to be real, that was not covered by the mainstream media, and it's taken them a year and a half to finally do it. I mean, I don't know if there's a clearer cut case to be made about almost corruption in the media than that, you know, looking at those two examples side by side. To make matters worse, as far as the laptop is concerned, there were so many accusations that stories from the laptop were uh, not only fake and untrue, but were literally Russian disinformation. Um, and we know that the right, so hang on actual Russian disinformation, yeah, right? Actual the, the, Russian disinformation. We know the fifty former intelligence. Um, well, that, that was actual Russian disinformation, but we know as far as the Hunter Biden laptop is concerned, you had these 50 former intelligence experts who come out and say that it appears to be Russian disinformation, even though they said in their letter that they had no evidence on which to base that other than their sense that this is the kind of thing the Russians uh, would do. So, we, it, you know, I was, I was watching, you know, uh, Senator Grassley and Senator Johnson, two Republicans who have been pursuing the Hunter Biden matter, have been making presentations on the Senate floor about some of the information they've gotten uh, that corroborates what is on the laptop. And every time they present some information, uh, they say and look to their Democratic colleagues who said at the time that it was Russian disinformation. They're looking at them and they're saying, well, do you still believe it's Russian disinformation? So um, this fight is still going on, and they're still getting more evidence, and, and Johnson and Grassley are certainly continuing to, uh, to investigate. Do you think, Byron, and this is sort of the working theory, that the reason, and I sort of likened it to 
back in October 2020, you had the media and big tech and that whole cabal, the intelligence people that you mentioned, and of course, the Democrats and the Biden campaign leading the charge, sort of setting the rules and the marching orders. Uh, we are going to bury this. This is not real. This is yeah. Russian disinformation. Empty coffin. Let's put that empty coffin in the ground and bury it, and we'll never speak of it again. And then weirdly, in the last few weeks, you've got the Post and the Times exhuming this coffin and yeah. being shocked that there's a bunch of bones in it, actually. And they're like, well, look at all this journalism we're now doing uh, about this. And, yeah. and the question is then obvious or glaring, Why? They would be very happy for this to remain buried because they were all part of the burying process. They were yeah. all in on it. It's hugely embarrassing and crushing to their credibility again to have to come back to this issue. Why on earth are they doing it at all? And the working theory, I guess, Byron, is they, their sources are telling them at the DOJ, whatever's happening, whatever's cooking in that. Biden, uh, in that Hunter Biden investigation is going to be bad enough that if they don't get out in front of it in some way, journalistically, it would look even worse and detonate as an even more destructive bomb. Right. Does that sound right to you? It's plausible. Actually, uh, Howard Kurtz at, at Fox, who spent a number of years at The Washington Post, uh, said, says it pretty convincingly, which is that uh, if you think a Hunter Biden indictment is on the way, and I'm not saying that it is, but if you think it's a real possibility, if it were to happen and it's based on events that your readers, were they to read only the New York Times or the Washington Post, would never have heard of, or mm -hmm. they would have thought it was based on fake or Russian disinformation, uh, this, it would be very embarrassing that you know this is serious enough that federal prosecutors have, have brought federal charges against this man, Hunter Biden, uh, but we just never told you about it. Well, we didn't know about it, but we never told you about it. So it puts him, it makes him look really bad. So I'm not saying that Hunter Biden is going to be indicted, right. but if he were to be indicted now, at least New York Times could say, oh, yeah, yeah, we reported on that a couple of days ago. A couple of quick things here, Byron. The jobs report for March out today. Yeah. Uh, some momentum on jobs, more than 400,000 jobs created, still short of expectations. Then also tempered, though, at the same time by the inflation report from yesterday, yet another four-decade high. Democrats nervous about that. They're also nervous, it sounds like. More of them are starting to sort of pop their heads up and say, oh, gee, uh, this, this border crisis thing seems uh, not great. Uh, what's this, this Title 42 thing? And that we're going to have Congressman yeah. Chip Roy on the show later on to get into this in detail. But it's like the administration's making a decision to take a border crisis that's already a huge liability politically for their party and just a disaster for the country and make it far worse. And there are Democrats who have been satisfied to say absolutely nothing about it for month after month after month, really the whole administration so far, who I think are starting to get the heads up that this is going to be so bad that it's going yeah. to hurt the party. So they're like, oh, maybe we shouldn't do this. I wonder what you make of the sort of like this uh, last moment conversion from some of these people who are suddenly concerned. Well, here again, it's, this is a coming and predictable disaster. My full interview with Byron York and all of today's show available online for free as part of the podcast at GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And that includes Bonus Benson on the weekends. When we come back, the home stretch, well, a Twitter update involving Cookie. She's made a change already. We'll get to that when we return.
For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Friday. It's the Guy Benson Show. Happy Friday to you. If you've got a big weekend coming up, fantastic. Even if you don't, that's also fine. In fact, regardless, you should check out Bonus Benson. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcast. We've got bonus content Saturday and Sunday on the podcast, in addition to the new show every single day, Monday through Friday. One note on the sports side of things real quick. Tomorrow is the final four, and it's actually pretty amazing, one of these matchups. So both games are on TBS. The first game, the early game, starts at around 6 o'clock Eastern time, and it's a number one seed Kansas against number two seed Villanova. This is down in New Orleans. So those are two pretty hyped, well-known programs, of course, Kansas has had a lot of success. I will note that I was at a game at Allen Fieldhouse in Lawrence, Kansas, this season. I saw them win, and I was also in Atlanta when the Braves turned their season around last year, went on to win the World Series. So let's just see what happens with Kansas. But I can say that 100% of the time that I have been to a game at Allen Fieldhouse, a home game for Kansas, 100% of the years where that has happened, they have gone to the Final Four at least just putting that out there. Not taking full credit, of course, you know, but I think it's important to be said. And then the late game is the one that has just all the storylines. And even if you get tired of the media talking about the Duke-UNC rivalry, which admittedly I sometimes do as well, it's like the Yankees-Red Sox of college basketball, the biggest rivalry. I'm a Yankees fan, so all that rivalry talk I enjoy because one of my teams is involved. But when it's not one of your teams, it's like, okay, we get it. It's a big rivalry, fine. But, I mean, even I have been totally sucked into this because, think about it, it's a second-seed Duke against an eight-seed North Carolina. And, by the way, when I said number one Kansas, number two Villanova earlier, I was talking about their seedings. This is a matchup in the Final Four of the two programs that make up, I think, the most bitter and high-profile rivalry in the sport, as I said. And, and on top of it, it's not just that they're going head-to-head in the Final Four. And I know fans of both programs who can barely sleep, not because they're excited, but because they're nervous. Like, the stakes are so high. Mary Catherine Ham wrote a piece about this. She's a Duke fan. She grew up in Durham. She's like, I can't even enjoy this. I am too nervous. The stakes are too high. I think she wrote that for OutKick. And Clay Travis, who I saw up in Tallahassee with Governor DeSantis this week, he said, your friends in North Carolina are not okay. They're basket cases if they're fans of either of these programs. And then atop all of that, which would be a huge deal under any circumstances, it's also the final season of Coach K. Mike Krzyzewski hanging it up after this season. This could be his final game or maybe not. Duke could advance to the national championship in his final season. North Carolina, the hated rival, they went into Cameron Indoor, which is the Duke arena, and beat Coach K and the Blue Devils in his final game ever coached in that building. UNC beat them. And all the Tar Heel fans were so excited about that and crowing about it. Well, here's an opportunity for epic revenge on an even bigger stage by Duke, Meanwhile, North Carolina has a chance to send Coach K out on losses, both in his own building and in the Final Four. Are you kidding? So that'll be just around 9 p.m. 
tomorrow night, and you bet I'll be watching that. In the meantime, back to nonsense here on the show. Producer Christine is new to Twitter. We rolled this out on Monday after we floated the idea last Friday. We put a poll up on Twitter. You all voted, and her Twitter handle is at CookiesJar1988. And you can go back to Monday's home stretch on the podcast and listen to the significance there. Cookies Jar 1988. Christine, I see that you were already over 100 followers. Congratulations. Yeah, I'm pretty famous. Oh, are you drunk on power already? I mean, the numbers don't lie. Just go look. I'm looking right now. You have just over 100 followers. Pretty big. And you posted a photo, a smiling photo of yourself with Trey Yingst up near the studio yesterday in New York. And this photo apparently caused you to make a decision to change your profile already. Your Twitter handle will remain the same, at CookiesJar1988. Your background photo on the landing page is still sweet, poor, deceased carousel, you know, up, up in the sky uh, after what happened to her because of you. But your actual avatar of yourself is no longer your hot dog costume. What happened? Well, Guy, um, once I posted the picture of Trey Yingst and myself, uh, it started gaining a little traction. And then Trey saw it himself and uh, replied. And then it started gaining more traction. And then I realized last night, oh, my gosh, Trey Yingst probably looked at who tweeted this and saw a girl and a hot dog. And that girl is the producer of the show he was just on. And I felt very You sound like Kamala Harris. That hot dog was me. That hot dog. That little hot dog was me. <laughs> little baby hot dog. Um, <laughs> and I just didn't, it wasn't sitting right. And honestly, I, I want the more mature side of Cookie to be shown on Twitter. So, so it's you hanging up a pony ornament on my Christmas tree instead. Yeah, I think we're getting In better. In honor of the pony that you had executed back in your childhood. Did not, did thing, not have her executed. She went to a family in the Amish country. I just want everybody no. to know. No, that, that was the, the cover-up story. But you're too late because here's the problem. On Monday, you created this Twitter account. On Tuesday, we were talking about it off the air. You remember where I was on Tuesday, Tallahassee. Mm-hmm. A certain governor of a certain state may or may not have seen and commented on your hot dog costume. I didn't want to tell you because I knew that you would probably change it immediately, but Ron DeSantis was just dunking on you. Are you making this up right now? I'm not going to fall for it. It was the day after you launched this Twitter account, so I was showing his team, and he, like, peered over my shoulder, and I'm like, he's like, she works for you? I said, yeah, she she runs the show. She's the executive producer. I'm not falling for it. I'm not fall. Is this true? Please tell me it's not true. Please. Okay, fine. It's one last April Fool. <laughs> Ron DeSantis, to my knowledge, did not see you in the hot dog costume. I'm going to let you share that with him the first time you meet him because I know that's the first thing you'll do. Hey, Governor, thanks for coming on. By the way, this is so embarrassing, but look at this photo because that's what you show everyone. Well, I know you're saying, so- oh, I have to take it off my Twitter because I'm so embarrassed. You're not embarrassed. You love it. I have to say there was a little embarrassment last night when I realized this was gaining some traction. So, um, the Trey Yanks will be like off reporting in a battlefield somewhere, and he'll see a tweet about himself, and he'll see who it's from, and it's this grinning lady in a hot dog costume with artillery 
booming all around him. Maybe not the best. I mean, I could also offer my producing services to him and say, I got your back. But something tells me he would take a pass. Yeah, I think hard pass there from him. So I am enjoying Twitter. Um, I will need to come up with some more content. I'm going to think about this over the weekend of what I want to share with my fans. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm open Mm -hmm. to taking suggestions. And, uh, yeah, let's get this going. Now, tens of people cry out for your every thought. So you have a brainstorm, maybe some mama's juice. Although here's a tip, since you're new to all of this, you probably want to be very careful about tweeting after some mama's juice. Just like put the app away at that time of night. It's just a pro tip. People get themselves into trouble, and you're a noob at this, and I want to make sure that you don't get actually canceled because we need you here. Why it's almost fully trained up to replace you, but not quite yet. So just hang on at least for a few more weeks. Oh, did I say that out loud? Oh, April Fool's, I I think. We got to go. We're out of time. We are out of time. And that's no joke. Have a great weekend. Back here on Monday for the Guy Benson Show. Bonus Benson over the weekend, including the Sunday replay of the Ron DeSantis interview. That's all free at GuyBensonShow.com on the podcast. Have a fantastic few days. We will talk to you on Monday. It's the Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.